0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 150, Case Yellow. Last time, as the war in Poland came to an end, the various SS units were pulled out to rest and regroup, while their superiors sought to learn from their experiences from the recent battles. But as Hitler wanted the war in the West to begin as early as the end of November there was no time to lose. The SSVT became a motorized infantry division. For the first time, the three infantry regiments were brought together and given artillery units. Deutschland would be the lead regiment, followed by Germania and Tosca. Right away, the infantry began to train with the artillery, and the support units of both were increased. Further, The time they had to train would lengthen, as Hitler's three service chiefs to the chancellery, plus the various generals, would stall him, with the truthful excuse that the Wehrmacht nor the SS units were ready to take on the British and the French. Now designated the SS-Verfungens, or SS-V, division, the tinkering would continue throughout the winter of 1939-40, and Hitler would visit the troops honored that they carried his name. And because of that, by the time the war in the West got underway, the SSV would have the best of everything, eventually joining Kukler's 18th Army, which would be invading the Netherlands when the time came. As winter gave way to spring, 1940, the Liebstandarte practiced taking bridges and crossing rivers, all with live fire overhead. It soon found out that its upcoming assignment was to act as the lead on the 227th Infantry Division's attack on the road and bridges of the River Isil, one of the first major waterways to be encountered during the invasion. But because the SS men were looking forward to the next battle, that didn't mean that the previous battle their superiors were engaged in with the regular army was over. The army didn't care if Hitler had a special branch under his control, but to expand it at the expense of the regular armed forces was intolerable. Further, Hitler, in not wanting to upset the generals, went along with their desires. Mostly. Not that it mattered to Himmler. He found ways to work around and actually hit things from the army and from the Fuhrer himself. For example, Hitler approved Himmler's request to take his concentration camp guards and the order police and turn them into division strength formations. Hitler probably assumed that Himmler was just beefing up the force. In actuality, after the expansion, Himmler quietly recruited civilians to take the place of the former camp guards. Now he had two more divisions and his concentration guards and police units. Hitler and the generals never thought to check up on Himmler's activities. With such indirect methods, Himmler had just over 34,000 men under his command by June of 1940. And yet, the SS recruitment camps, now spread all over Germany, were still operating full blast. To be sure, Himmler lost several battles to the OKW during the winter of 1939-40, but what he did succeed in, he used to the best of his ability. One such was the official designation of the militarized SS, now the Waffen, or armed SS. So, within that 34,000-man force, Himmler had the Liebstandarte, the SSV divisions, the Toltenkopf and Polizzi divisions, 14 Toltenkopf-Standaten regiments, and, for the future, two SS Junker cadet schools, and all the organization needed to help run them smoothly. The regular army kept making the compelling argument that many of these men of the SS would never have passed the requirements to join the army, so why should they be given limited and therefore valuable, equipment now. But Himmler used Hitler to get what he wanted, and even when that didn't work, Theodor Eck of the Totenkopf would take whatever he could get from wherever he could get it. His small arms came from the confiscated Czech army, his larger guns from his brother SSVT unit, who would then replace their losses from the regular army. As we have seen, the Germans had placed their forces for the war in the west into three army groups, some 135 divisions strong, from Switzerland to the North Sea. After some changes, it was decided that the Chief of Staff, General von Rundstedt's Army Group A, in the center of the German line, would cut through the Ardennes, drive to the coast, and cut the Allies into two. As for the SSV Division and the Liebstandarte, a part of General von Bock's Army Group B, they would advance into the Netherlands, which would draw in many British and French troops there, thus helping Army Group A's thrust. Meanwhile, the Polizzi Division was with Army Group C, lined up against the Maginot Line. And even worse, for Eck and Himmler, the Toltenkoff was held in General Reserve. Thus, the honor and future of the Waffen-SS was in the hands of the SSV Division and the Liebstandarte. On May 9, 1940, word went out. The attack would begin the next morning. With that, the three battalions of the Der Fuhrer Regiment crept up to the village of Elton, just off the Netherland border. There they waited. Their commander, Oberfuhrer George Kepler was just 500 feet behind them, in a house that was serving as his headquarters. Around him was the SS Artillery Battalion, along with other support troops. It was these men that would be the tip of the spear for the 207th Infantry Division. At 5.30 a.m., May 10th, the 3rd Battalion of the Der De Regiment moved out, sneaking up on the Border Guard's manning the custom post at Baberik. The Germans were in control within seconds. With this done, their brothers in armored cars and motorcycles came forward, and they pushed on. About ten miles to the northwest of Baberik was the River ISIL, with its bridge their objective. What Dutch troops, policemen, and border guards there were, were pushed aside allowing the 3rd Battalion to reach the River Isel by 7.20 a.m. But waiting there, on the far side, was the regular Dutch army, holed up in Fort Westervoort. Yet the Germans knew that there was not a continuous line of defenders in front of them. The Dutch did not have that large of an army. No, instead, it had pockets of defenders and would use their many rivers to defend themselves. As for those places not heavily defended, there, men were stationed, but ready to blow up whatever bridge was in front of them. The overall Dutch defensive plan, like that of Belgium's, was to hold off the invaders as long as they could, until the British and French could get troops up to the front to assist in their defense. The Germans knew this, too. To make sure that the Dutch did not fall back to Fortress Holland, the most western part of the country cut off by major waterways, and blow their bridges, thus wrecking the Germans' timetable, General Kurt Student's 7th Airborne Division would parachute down or land gliders manned by the 22nd Air Landing Division to capture bridges and other important targets around Rotterdam and The Hague. But not enough men could be dropped to hold out for long after capturing their objectives. Hence, their comrades pushing in from the borders would have to quickly get to them, and this meant the Waffen-SS, specifically the Liebstandarte and the SSV divisions, as they were the only motorized formations within Kugler's 18th Army. And General Student's men did reasonably well. The targets around Rotterdam were captured, but not so near the Hague, hence the SS men were needed to get to them before they were overrun. The immediate commander of the 3rd Battalion of the Der Führer Regiment, Obersturm Hilmar Wakerla, realized that Student's men trapped near the Hague was his men's opportunity. Though they had no practical fighting experience, having missed the action in Poland, Hilmar was determined that their progress was not to be checked. And Regimental Commander Kepler, back at headquarters, agreed. The 3rd Battalion would cross the River Isel in front of them. Kepler ordered an SS artillery battery and the men of the 207th Infantry Division forward to join the 3rd Battalion. With that done, the artillery and added infantry began firing at the defending Dutch troops on the other side. Their accuracy may not have been impressive, but it was intense enough fire to force the Dutch to keep their heads down. With that done, the soldiers of the 3rd Battalion began jumping into inflatable rubber boats and paddling their way across the 500-foot-wide river. Though some of the men were lost or wounded, the majority made their way across, and a bridgehead was established. Things were going the Germans' way, and it was about to get better. NCO Ober Schaffer Ludwig Keplinger noticed that even though the bridge, which had been blown, was damaged, it was still more or less intact, and wanting to make sure that the bridgehead was not pushed back into the water He led a force across the weakened structure. It held, and soon his force was just under the walls of Fort Westervoort. Between their position and the bridgehead, now expanding, the garrison surrendered. Keplinger would be the first Waffen-SS soldier to earn the Knight's Cross. As impressive as the 3rd Battalion's exploits had been thus far, it was not enough for Varkella he ordered them to move on. Advancing another two miles, the 3rd Battalion reached Arnhem and got into a skirmish, but was able to quickly push on. Another five miles west brought them to Hilsum, which ended up in another exchange with Dutch troops. But such was the momentum of the Germans that they were able to push past these defenders as well. Yet just to the southwest of Hilsum At Rancoum, in a thick wood, the Dutch had set up an impressive artillery battery along the River Greb that checked the advance of the 3rd Battalion. They were still some 40 miles or so from Rotterdam, but were now stymied for the moment. Kepler ordered them to stand down and prepare for an assault on the Dutch battery the next day. The airborne troops would have to hold out on their own. For a while longer. Going back to the morning of the invasion, just north of the Der Fuhrer Regiment, was Sepp Dietrich's Liebstandarte. It was formed into two battle groups who surged forward and had little trouble with the unsuspecting border guards at De Pop. With the reconnaissance company of the more northern unit out in front, commanded by Hauptsturmfuhrer Kurt Meyer, they pushed on. Some 30 miles, until around 2 p.m., they reached the town of Zwolle, just east of the River Isel. Not only was their progress staggering, honestly, it had more to do with Holland's lack of military means than the Germans' ability, but when they came upon the ISIL, they found the Dutch guards lying in the sun. The German motorcycle troops gathered up their prisoners and smiled at their accomplishment. But it was then that they noticed that the bridge had already been blown, hence the relaxed nature of the Dutch guards, as their work had already been accomplished. As there were not to be any armored cars or motorcycles crossing here, the men of the Liebstandarte moved south along the river to join up with the more southern battle group, except for one part of the battalion, which was not motorized they were forced to commandeer all of the bicycles in the area and promised to catch up to their comrades later. But when Meyer and his men made contact with the southern battle group, the bridge before them was also previously destroyed. Nothing for it, the now rejoined 3rd Battalion of the Liebstandarte moved further south, until they found a point to cross. But even this was only possible as their artillery unit had caught up to them to provide cover while crossing. But for all their tenacity, General von Bock, the Army Group commander, was not impressed, and so he ordered them to pull back, and instead they would support the 9th Panzer Division, which was making progress to their south. The most advanced units of the 9th Panzer were approaching Rotterdam from the south, but soon they reached the River Maas, which stopped them cold. Still, a few units crossed and set up a bridgehead, but not enough to risk allowing their panzers and other armored vehicles to cross over in the open. Because of this lack of forward movement, soon there was a massive traffic jam along the German line. One of those now stalled was the SSV Division, without the Der Fuhrer Regiment, of course, which was further north. Not until May 12th did the SSV division cross the Mass. yet its progress remained slow, as by now all the bridges they needed were blown. The officers of the regular army made sure to bring this to the attention of the OKW. As punishment, the SSV was broken into two battle groups and told to Clean up the mess behind the 9th Panzer Division proper, and to watch their left flank, as Allied troops would surely be coming up from Belgium. But once they were past the smaller rivers and into open territory, the panzers were able to zoom on ahead in the most southern part of the Netherlands, just above the Belgian border. And as they were needed, the motorized SSV was allowed to join them. Their immediate goal was to save students' paratroopers at the bridge of Mordek, itself just 13 miles south of Rotterdam. Behind the Russian-German army was the Liebstandarte. But the regular army and SS units had more to worry about than just the Dutch. On May 12th, word reached them that motorized units from a French mechanized division had just crossed the border. To face this new threat, the SSV division and the slower half of the 9th Panzer Division were ordered to halt and turn south. By now, the French armor were only 10 miles from the bridge. Which is when Goering divided some of his Luftwaffe and pounded the French tanks. As this was done, the SSV and Panzers engaged the enemy. The next day, May 13th, the French pulled back and recrossed the border. Though, in truth, they had not tried very hard against the Germans. It was a sign of things to come, which left the Dutch to fight on alone. Getting back to the Der Fuhrer Regiment in the north, the men had rested that night of May 10th, while Kepler tried to figure out how to take the outpost at the Greb line in front of him. The morning of May 11th came, and Kepler was ready to attack, even though his artillery units, nor the slower parts of the 207th Infantry Division, had caught up to him yet. Moving out, the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of Der Regiment crossed the orchards and dealt with the hedgerows, making for the fixed position that morning. Yet it was that very land that the defenders knew so well that allowed them to sneak up on the Germans in small groups and hit them from ever-changing sides. It took the entire day, and way too many casualties, just to reach the Dutch Line, which is as far as the Germans got when the sun went down. Kepler knew that, in his eagerness to show what his SS troops could do, he had miscalculated, which left him with casualties, but no success to show for it. But by the mid-morning of May 12th, the SS artillery units and some of the 207th had arrived. Thus, Kepler renewed his attack at 2 p.m. The SS artillery opened up, sending shells at the Dutch fort, forcing the men inside to keep their heads down. But mixed in with the explosives were smoke shells that allowed the attackers to reach the outpost without resistance. The SS men poured into the tunnels and bunkers, using grenades and their submachine guns to clear all before them. The Dutch that were able evacuated the outpost and reformed a new line. Kepler and Wakela spoke and decided to press on with the attack. The 3rd Battalion was ordered forward at 10 p.m., having been divided into three battle groups. But as much pressure as Regimental Commander Kepler was under, much of it coming from himself, Wachela, the 3rd Battalion commander, was about to outdo him. Wanting to make sure he was never demoted and sent back to Dachau to be a guard, he left his headquarters joined his men and headed off with one of the three battle groups. And indeed, the battalion in its three groups reached the enemy's line, as there was no fort to contend with. But instead of waiting for the two other battalions to come forward, while Kerala pushed his battle group on, he could see his goal, the railway line at Renin just ahead. But that was when the Dutch counterattacked, and suddenly Huachella's lone battle group became an island in a sea of enemy troops. As it was still dark, he wounded in two places, sent a single soldier back to ask for help. as the sun rose on May thirteenth. The commander of the two hundred seventh Infantry Division, General von Tetomen, sent forward a regular infantry regiment. Between them, the artillery raining down on the Dutch, as well as Luftwaffe bombs, the defenders were forced back, and the 3rd Battalion was saved. In killed, wounded, and missing, the Der Fuhrer Regiment had lost 364 men, more of a testament to the defenders rather than to any incompetence of the SS. That day would also see the Greb line breached, which allowed the men to rest for the next and last part of the invasion, the Battle of Fortress Holland. Not that their participation would be needed. Back to the south. As the SSV Division guarded their southern flank, the panzers of the 9th Division reached the River Maas and Mordech. Soon the Liebstandarte joined the tanks. Now it was time for Rotterdam a bit to the north, to fall. Yet that was to happen not from an attack, but from a threat from Berlin of a bombing raid. Hence the Dutch commander there surrendered. But due to a mistake, bombs were dropped anyway around 3.30 p.m. Some 800 civilians died, and many thousands were now homeless. As soon as the surrender came through, Sepp Dietrich was ordered to take his motorized Liebstandata around Rotterdam, to The Hague, as other German airborne troops were holed up there and under attack. Thus, Kurt Meyer's motorcycle company flew through the streets, which should have been relatively calm with the surrender. But because of the accidental bombing, that was impossible. People were panicking and screaming. It was chaos everywhere. As such, some of the SS motorcyclists took their time to shoot at Dutch troops who were in the middle of surrendering, and one of those stray bullets severely wounded General Student at his headquarters as he had poked his head out. On went Meyer's men, reaching and rescuing the airborne troops by the end of the day. Well, that's one interpretation. By that point, most of the fighting was dying down as the Dutch government was in talks with Berlin about a complete surrender, which took place the next morning, May 14th. Another staggering victory for Nazi Germany. Now, most of the German forces in Holland would turn south. It was the turn of Belgium.